Our reading this week comes from Genesis chapter 2, and we're picking up in verse 4. If you remember last week, we covered uh, the creation week right up to uh, verse 3 of chapter 2, and now we begin a new section in uh, verse 4 as we focus in a little bit more specifically on uh, the people that God makes and places in creation. Genesis chapter 2, the words are on the screen. These are the generations of the heavens and the earth when they were created, in the day that the Lord God made the earth and the heavens. When no bush of the field was yet in the land, and no small plant of the field had yet sprung up, for the Lord had not caused it to rain on the land, and there was no man to work the ground, and a mist was going up from the land and was watering the whole face of the ground, then the Lord God formed the man of dust from the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life. And the man became a living creature. And the Lord God planted a garden in Eden in the east. And there he put the man whom he had formed. And out of the ground the Lord God made to spring up every tree that is pleasant to the sight and good for food. The tree of life was in the midst of the garden and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. A river flowed out of Eden to water the garden. And there it divided and became four rivers. The name of the first is Pishon. It is the one that flowed around the whole land of Havilah, where there is gold, and the gold of that land is good. Delium and onyx stone are there. The name of the second river is Gihon. It is the one that flowed around the whole land of Cush. And the name of the third river is the Tigris, which flows east of Assyria, and the fourth river is the Euphrates. The Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and keep it. And the Lord God commanded the man, saying, You may surely eat of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat, for in the day that you eat of it you shall surely die. Then the Lord God said, It is not good that man should be alone. I will make him a helper fit for him. Now out of the ground the Lord God had formed every beast of the field and every bird of the heavens and brought them to the man to see what he would call them. And whatever the man called every living creature, that was its name. The man gave names to all the livestock and to the birds of the heavens and to every beast of the field. But for Adam there was not found a helper fit for him. So the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man, and while he slept, took one of his ribs and closed up its place with flesh. And the rib that the Lord God had taken from the man he made into a woman and brought her to the man. Then the man said, This at last is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman, because she was taken out of man. Therefore a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. And the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. We ask that God will bless the reading of his word to us this morning. I don't know if you've ever experienced deja vu before, that weird feeling that you've been here before, you've had that exact conversation or gone through that exact set of actions in this place at that time. It's a really unsettling feeling to have. You feel that something in your mind isn't right. You're a a bit disjointed and a bit unsure as to, to what's going on. There was a chap in 2010 here in the UK who experienced deja vu constantly for three years. Constantly, every moment he felt he had lived it before. Everyone he met, he thought he had met 
in the same place and had the same conversation at the same time, and he became terrified that he was living in a time loop. I don't know if you've ever seen films like Groundhog Day and that kind of thing where somebody's caught in the same day and they just repeat the day over and over and over. And this is what he genuinely came to believe as much as he knew. It was totally irrational to believe that. He couldn't help himself. He just kept having the same experience over and over and over again. He had to stop watching TV. He had to stop listening to the radio. He couldn't read newspapers or magazines. He was absolutely terrified, and it didn't go away for three years. He started to feel like he wasn't living his life anymore, that somebody else had already lived it, and he was almost just watching the replay from behind his own eyes. He didn't know what was real, and it created this identity crisis that was absolutely crippling for him. Now, I suspect none of us have experienced that level of deja vu for all that you've had the moment where you think, oh, that's a bit weird. But we've all experienced something like it when we live our lives, we get up, we go to work, we see our friends, we see our family, we eat meals, we head back to bed again, and the routine can create in us this sort of odd, disjointed feeling that life isn't going anywhere. It's unchanging. I'm just doing the same day over and over again, and the day might change from Monday to Tuesday to Wednesday, but it's the same day I'm living time after time after time. And this is an especially big problem for Christians when we come to church each week is that we meet the same group of people in the same building, and if we're being honest with one another, we sit in the same seats every single week, and we're familiar. We have a sort of a groove that we run in, and then we go home. And then we go back to the the working week, and then we come back next Sunday and do exactly the same thing again. And the routine leads us to slowly give up on growing and, and developing because everything stays the same. It doesn't really matter what you do or what's happened in the space between those two Sundays. You turn up at church, you smile, you nod, you say you're fine when people ask you, and you do the same sort of things week in, week out. It can leave you feeling uncomfortable. It can actually leave you preserving the same way of life day in, day out, year in, year out, that never changes. And the thing about people, living things that never change is that they're not healthy. Living things are supposed to change and grow and develop and mature, and there's nothing wrong with routine. There's nothing wrong with discipline, but we need to be careful that we are seeing our lives in an intentional way where I do this thing knowing what I'm doing and why I'm doing it and entering into that each week rather than just running on autopilot. Genesis chapter 2 is a challenging passage of Scripture for many reasons, and we're going to explore some of them this morning. And I know that we're not going to cover everything, as we didn't last week in Genesis chapter 1. And I know that there are some that would long for us to spend longer on it and delve into the details of it, and we're not going to do that because we want to get the big picture of Genesis as we go through. But God is going to tell us in Genesis chapter 2 in broad terms what we were made for. What is the meaning of life? That sounds very grand, isn't it? I want to tell you in this morning's sermon what the meaning of life is, but that's exactly what I want to do. And it may not be the answer you were hoping for, but it speaks directly to this idea that we just run on from day to day just doing the same things without having to think too much about it. We find in Genesis chapter 2, picking up in verse 4 through to verse 8, that man is made for a purpose. 
Not simply to run on and just fill your days until you have nothing left to do, but for a specific goal, a function, a role that we are to play, regardless of whether you're male or female, regardless of whether you stay at home or whether you go out to work or you're retired or whatever it may happen to be. Man is made for God. These are the generations of the heavens and the earth when they were created, Moses said. And this is a a marker phrase in Genesis, a little bit like in chapter 1 where you you hear the repeated uh, phrase, and God said, or and God looked and saw. It's one of these repeated things that's supposed to get you to notice something happening again and again and again. And it comes up 11 times in Genesis, and each time it does, it signals a break in the book, a sort of division where a section is beginning and an old one has finished. And we're dealing with the big picture of creation. And now, Moses says, Something is changing, and he focuses a little further in. We're going to find this in Genesis as we go through. We start with the huge picture, the creation of the entire universe, and then we focus a little bit, and then we focus a little bit, and then we focus a little bit until uh, we get to the end of the book, and we're focusing really on one person, one life, um, that of Joseph. But we'll see as we go through how that uh, works out. So we're focusing in a little bit more narrowly this morning from the creation of all things to the creation of man and why he exists at all. And when you think about it, it's an important question to ask. Why did God bother? God knowing the future, knowing how all things would pan out, seeing all the difficulty that would come as a result of man and the sinfulness of man that we'll consider next week. Why bother? I mean, antelopes and lions and whales and all, I mean, they're, they're fine, aren't they? Were they not enough? Weren't they beautiful enough? Was the planet not well-ordered enough without something in addition? Well, God clearly decided no. And so, despite the fact He had made so many other wonderful things, He comes, and now He makes man from the dust of the ground. And that's quite interesting in and of itself, because we don't know how God made anything else. It doesn't tell us that God chiseled birds out of rocks or, or fashioned Um, fashioned lions out of the the leaves of bushes or or whatever it might be. It never says that, but he says specifically, he forms mud together, dirt, dust, and in fashioning that together, he makes it into the first man. Not bashed together like we might do if we cast our minds back to art classes in school, sort of ham-fistedly bashing lumps of clay together into a sort of gingerbread-type figure. Not doing that, but intricately fashioning man from the stuff of the earth. I don't think we need to sort of cling too much to the idea that it is literally mud or dust. I think the idea is that God forms from the stuff of creation that He has just made men and women, and we find that they are intricately, they are beautifully made. And when you think about your own body, it's not something that you perhaps think of as intricately and beautifully made. In our society and Western culture, we're encouraged to think of ourselves as actually always not very good and quite ugly most of the time. But you are. However you feel about yourself, whether you could feel that you could do with putting on a little weight, losing a little weight, having longer hair, shorter hair, different colored eyes, whatever it may happen to be, God made you beautifully and intricately and wonderfully. And the only thing I need to do to illustrate that is, when you go to the doctor, it's revealed just how intricately you are made. 
some tiny thing somewhere has gone wrong, and all of a sudden, you've got symptoms breaking out all over the place. Your nose is streaming, your eyes are puffy, you can't breathe properly, you're hacking and coughing all the time, your skin feels all prickly. You've got the flu. It's one tiny thing, and yet your whole body is, um, is influenced by it because of how intricately it's all been woven and knitted together by God Himself. And you get very much the idea of this, as much as God calls into existence the birds and, and the beasts of the field and so on, you get the impression from the language of this text that man has God's fingerprints on him as he squashes and, and shapes and draws out and, and flattens in and whatever else that he did to shape man into the image that he is in a way that isn't the case of other animals. And what's really interesting about this is God creates man, God's name is changed in the text here. It's not something that we particularly notice because English obscures it slightly, but in the, the first chapter, Moses has been using the name Elohim for God, which is really just the same as the English word God. It's a sort of generic name for a deity, for a divine being, an all-powerful one. That is essentially what the name means, an all-powerful one, somebody who is above and beyond almighty. But the word that is used in this passage, not just generally God, we find Moses saying, the Lord God. We could go into uh, the, the divine name. We're not going to spend uh, time on that today. There'll be other opportunity for that. But the, the name, as it were, of God is Yahweh. When he speaks to Moses in Exodus, and Moses says, when you send me into Egypt to tell Pharaoh, I've got to let all the people go, who should I say is speaking to me? And God says this. And it just basically means I am that I am. I exist. I am the one, essentially the only one, completely sufficient. I need nothing and no one. I am underived, unbeginning and unending. And that's what Moses begins to call God here, the Lord God. In your Bibles, if you have Bibles with you, and I would encourage you to have Bibles with you for all that the text is up on the screen, but have Bibles with you. Uh, when you see the word Lord in verse 5, and it's all capitals, usually small capitals, it means that God's name is being used at this point, and there are all sorts of reasons why it's translated Lord with all capitals. We're not going to go into that this morning. But it basically means that the, the personal name of God is being used. God is relating to somebody on a personal level here. He's not just some God, a God over there doing something. He's the God, your Lord, your God, and that's why His personal name is used. And so as man is created before the beginning of man, God made. But now that man has been formed, God enters into a personal relationship, a personal dialogue, and so He becomes not just God, but the Lord God. And this gives us a huge clue as to why God bothered creating man. Why not just have the animals, as wonderful and as beautiful as they are? Because what God desires is to involve Himself personally with a people. That's why He made us. He doesn't involve Himself personally with the animals in that same sense, as we talked about last week, and I realize I get myself into trouble. Every time I talk about animals, I've been rebuked for my poor handling of goldfish last week, and I was uh, talked to you about my dim views of dogs and cats and, and so on, but, but it doesn't matter how majestic a lion might be, he doesn't know God. He is not the Lord God in that way to the lion, but he is to you. 
God involves himself personally with a people. And so God enters into that personal relationship. And we find as we read through Scripture into the New Testament, the particular way he does that is by literally entering into his creation in the form of Jesus and coming and taking our place. Now, we've not covered sin, the entry of sin and death into the world yet, and yet we know it's coming in Genesis chapter 3, when man breaks the relationship that he has with God in its infancy, and yet God resolves to change that because I know you, and I'm in a relationship with you, and I love you, and you can't fix this problem, but I can. And so Jesus comes is the way and the truth and the life. No one can come to God the Father except through Him. And when we do come, we're drawn into that close relationship where God ceases being just a God to you and becomes your Lord God, the one who enters into a relationship with you, who loves you and blesses you and leads you to see Him and respond to Him in worship. This tells you an awful lot about human value. It tells you a lot about your worth. Again, I don't know how you feel about yourself this morning. Most of us have pretty poor self-image. We don't think that we are in great shape or that we look all that great. We don't feel that we are the people we ought to be, that personality-wise we could be better, achievement-wise we're just not doing what we want to do. We have all sorts of baggage and hang-ups that make us feel rotten about ourselves, have a dim view of ourselves, and yet the Creator of the universe, who a chapter ago, just a few verses previously, has been making stars and planets and galaxies and all sorts of other things, is entering into personal relationship with you. Genesis chapter 2, it doesn't matter how old you are this morning, how old you feel, this was written before you were born. God knew exactly what you would be like at this point. He knew exactly what you would be with all of your little foibles and failures. He knew all those successes you would have and all those terrible things that might be done or said by you, past, present, and future. And in spite of all of that, God still comes and says, I would be the Lord, your God. Not just a God, but your God. By sending my own son to die for your state, for your sake. You're part of a family that's been handcrafted by God because He didn't have to make you. He didn't have to make a single one of your ancestors, but He made men and women and ordered the world so that you were born and so that He could send His Son to die in your place. Now, I don't want to make you feel that you've got a big head or anything because He's not doing this because you're awesome. He's doing this because you desperately need him to, precisely because you're not awesome. But he didn't have to make you, and he didn't have to send his son to die for you. But he does, and he calls you into a family, and that should make us overwhelmed with desire for God, with a need to know more about him. Who does that? Who does that? I look at stuff that I've made in my own house, and it's touch and go as to whether I keep it, because I recognize, actually, the older I get, the poorer it was made, and just how pointless it ultimately was, and I should probably just chuck it out. And yet, God never tires of us. Never tires of us. Still sends His Son to die after the 18th year of living as a Christian and failing in this way or that way, or, or forgetting to read your Bible as if it's somehow not important to know the God who made you and the stars and called you into His presence and so on. And yet He does. 
We were handmade by God so that we might love Him and worship Him. We were made for His glory, for His pleasure, to reveal to the whole of creation just how amazing God is. That's why we can have funerals like the one that we had on Wednesday past and the one that we'll have tomorrow. And yes, we can grieve because we've lost someone that we love, but we're able to celebrate. There is always a note of thanksgiving and joy when a Christian dies because they were made not primarily for us to enjoy, although we have enjoyed their company and their fellowship and and, um, they blessed us in so many ways. They weren't even made for themselves to enjoy their life. They were made for God's glory and they were made for God's glory not in such a way that they could work really hard to prove how good they were to show off God's creative power, but to show when God came and despite all of their failures, saved them, this is how good a God we have. You get the sense Moses is just sort of showing off a little bit at this point, because God created the entire universe. But that really a minor thing in comparison to what's to come in chapter 2 and 3 and on to the end of the rest of Scripture. The universe. Who cares about the universe? Look at what God does with the people who don't even want to know Him. Isn't that astonishing? And so we come to Christ, and we live for Him each day, and we ask that He would save us and wash us clean constantly so that we might glorify God because that is where God's glory is most fully and most powerfully made known. We are made, first and foremost, for God. Secondly, we are made for obedience in verses 9 uh, through to 17. Moses carries on describing the Garden of Eden and Adam's place in it, and he reinforces this idea of the center of all things being God. Man is placed in this wonderful garden, but even here in this place made for him, he's not the center. Adam isn't the be-all and end-all of the Garden of Eden. He's sort of put in there almost as a gardener, to, to do something with it, what we find placed in the center of the Garden of Eden are the tree of life and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And this garden is the source of this great river that spills out into the world, splits off into four separate massive rivers that sort of nourish and sustain life everywhere in the known world at the time. Moses is writing of his day of, of the, the ancient Near East, the Middle East as, as we would call it. And that river splitting into those four that he named give life to everywhere, to everyone in the known world at the time. And Adam is placed in the garden to tend it and to keep it. Actually, I think what Adam is really placed into the garden for is to to tend and keep the garden, to see how the garden has been made, unlike the wilderness and the world outside. And then I think when God tells him to go and subdue the world and to dominate everything, he's being told to go and turn the rest of the world into a garden like Eden is, but we'll come on to that um, in in a future week. But he's set there to tend to this garden. And he can eat anything he wants. He can go anywhere, do anything, but he's not allowed to eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And that's it. One rule. You have perfection at your feet, and all you've got to do is honor one thing I ask of you, Adam. And as we'll see next week, he can't even do that. Adam isn't the center of the garden. These two special trees are the one that gives life that comes from God and the one that Adam is told to hold back from. The one that, um, it's not so much that it reveals good and evil because for God to say to Adam, to talk about things like good and evil, Adam must have some understanding of what, uh, what those two ideas, good and evil, might be. I think what this tree, um, this tree reveals to us is that 
ability to, to call things good and evil, that position that God alone has to say that is right and that is wrong, because that is the sin that Adam and Eve ultimately fall into. It's not just that their eyes are opened and all of a sudden they see that there are some things that are wrong in the world, because there isn't. There's nothing wrong in the world at this point apart from them. I think what happens is they, are, they take upon themselves the authority of saying this is right and that is wrong, which belongs alone uh, to God. God's grace, His love, and God's law, His command not to eat from the tree, they are placed at the center of everything. And if Adam and Eve will abide by those two things, be sustained by His grace, and abide by His law, they will have everything they could possibly ever have desired, as well as the whole earth to enjoy in all its fruitfulness. There's an idea going around our world today and creeping into the church that in order for humans to be totally free, we must have no constraints put on us on any level whatsoever. We must be absolutely free to do whatever we choose at any time. Whatever whim takes us, that's what we should go and do. And if we're constrained, we're not truly free. Therefore, we're slaves. Now, that's a nonsense. We recognize that because the freedom to go and commit murder isn't really true freedom, is it? If we commit murder, we're not creating a better world, or we're not blessing anybody else. If we go and steal things, or whatever it might be, we're not in any way living a, a, a good and a godly life. These things are constrained upon us not to do them so that the whole society flourishes and thrives. But when Christ comes along and says to people, you can be free from sin, but you have to follow me, you have to ask for my forgiveness, you have to do what I ask you, people balk at that. That's a nonsense. You can't place rules on my life and tell me I'm free, but that's exactly what Jesus says. And we as church-going people, Christians, can sometimes think that way, can't we? We, we slip over into thinking, well, that's just being a bit legalistic, isn't it? We, you know, we, we, we need to be free because God's grace abounds towards us. That's not fair. You can't ask me to withhold from certain things or do things that I don't want to do. That's not right. Salvation means that I'm free, but... This is the kind of freedom that God provides. Freedom within constraint. So that whatever we do within those bounds, we know not only will it not offend God, it will bless God and worship Him and glorify Him because we were made for a purpose. If we had no purpose in this life, we would be free to go and do whatever we want. And any rules would truly be constraining and wrong upon us, but we're not. We were made for a purpose. Trains are made to run on tracks. It doesn't go well for the people on board a train when the train leaves the tracks and heads off to go in a different direction of its own choosing. You have complete freedom to go from Glasgow to Aberdeen on the train, but you have to go along the train line. You can't go along the M8 and across and then um, go around Fife for a wee while and then round on the roads. It just can't be done. If you're on the train, you've got to go on the train line. And so it is with us. If we're going to glorify God, which is our very purpose, our reason for existing, then we do so within the constraints God provides, because God knows what needs to be done to glorify Him. I realize that I'm at risk of just sounding like I like being cruel to animals, but a fish cannot be free if it climbs out of its tank. It will be dead. It's truly free within the environment that it's placed in so it flourishes. We cannot be truly free without God being at the center of everything. 
And sometimes that means difficult decisions have to be made. Sometimes sacrifices have to be made for that. But this is how we live the truly blessed life, satisfied, fulfilled life that God has made us for in the first place. Not that we'll be free from pain or even death, but that we will live through the midst of all of that with the blessing of God poured out to us in limitless measure. God is at the center of everything, and with the gracious sacrifice that comes to us through Christ's death on the cross on our behalf, we are truly free. Paul tells us, if we live like the world does, we're slaves to sin. We think we're free, but we're not. We're slaves. We're slaves to our own desire. We can never escape. We're slaves to the fear of death. We'll do anything to avoid looking old. We'll do anything to avoid thinking about death that will surely come to us all. It's, it's the one great inevitable reality every human being on this planet will face. And we're a slave to that, Paul says, if we don't live under Christ. Is there anything that's more pitiful than a creature that thinks it's free but it's living in a cage? When we live in complete dependence upon God's grace and in obedience to His will, to His law, we're totally free in the only way that matters. God is made, man is made for God. Man is made for obedience. And lastly, man is made for community. You can't help but get away from that, can you? That God makes man, and then he puts him in the garden, and then God looks at man and says, it's not good for man to be alone. It's not right that man should be on his own like this. So we'll make a helper comparable to him. And the, the language of that doesn't come through, again, all that well in English, but the idea of Eve being created as a helper comparable is not a servant. It's not a slave so that Adam can just sort of order her around and she'll do whatever he desires. She can have his tea ready for him coming home from a day of gardening. That's not what God is talking about. What God is talking about is somebody who is according to Adam's opposite, to be a bit literal about the way that the language works. According to his opposite. Everything that Adam is not, Eve is. And so when the two come together, they mesh and fit perfectly, completing one another. So all that Eve lacks, Adam supplies, and, and vice versa. And there was a way that um, there's a way that both Adam talks about this—that she is bone of my bone and flesh of my flesh. She's me. She, we're one. We're 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 part of the one whole. And that there's a way that um, some of the rabbis used to talk about that from um, well, for the last several thousand years anyway. That Eve wasn't um, fashioned out of a bone from Adam's feet that he might trample on her, or a bone from Adam's head that she might rule over him, but was um, taken from his side that she might stand next to him, which sounds perhaps a little bit sappy and sentimental, but there's a great degree of truth in it. They're made to complement each other. Now, complementarity has some knock-on effects. If you're different but complement, you have different roles. Women can have children, men can't. And I know it seems ridiculous, perhaps, to you for me to have to outline that today, but we live in a society that says that's not true. Men can have children. And how we deal with that is a whole other issue altogether. But we're different, and we were created different, but created to complement one another to fit together. And so Adam names all these creatures, and you have this almost comical image of Adam there, and God brings an animal, and he says, giraffe. No, and the giraffe goes past. Zebra. 
No, the zebra goes by. Lion, no. And he goes through them all. I don't know how long this took, but he goes through all the animals that God makes, and then in the end, one is not found that's right. Doesn't fit, doesn't complement, doesn't mesh together with him. And so Eve is produced, and they're supposed to live in community. Verse, um, we find it in verse 24, the idea that a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast, be joined, united, stuck together almost indivisibly with his wife, they will become one flesh, not two happening to live together in the same place at the same time, but one flesh, one person, as it were, and the man and his wife were both naked and not ashamed. Everything was perfect. Nothing wrong at all in the world. Everything was, as God said in chapter 1, very, very good. Man is made to exist in community. That's why the writer of Hebrews makes such a big deal about being together in church. It's important that you meet together, not like the people out there who go off on their own and it's just them under a tree with their own musings. We have the same today. People that just won't join to a church because they've got their Bible and that's enough for them. I'm part of the universal church. I don't know how many times I've heard that. This is a nonsense. You've got to be part of a local church because we exist to live in community with one another, but also with God at the core. And so as we live together, not wanting to carp on too much about church membership in a sermon in Genesis, but as we live together with God in the center, we find that we are each able to build up and support one another, pointing each other to God, but we're also able to hold one another to account. Because I can see things in you that you can't see in yourself, and so I can help you see those things that just can't keep happening. You can't keep saying stuff like that. You really can't keep going there. And that's how we're blessed and built up together. In community, in family, all part of one whole under Christ. And Christ is the means where we're drawn into that one big relationship. Not marriage. Marriage doesn't save people, although marriage is fundamentally a huge blessing upon the world for the building up of a society and its people and for the blessing of the church and for the provision of children and so on. But marriage is not the be-all and end-all of everything. And if you are not married and if you do not get married over the course of your life, you are no less valuable or valued a person in the sight of God because he made you to exist in community with him and with brothers and sisters who are called in Christ. That is where your value lies. For all that marriage is a wonderful blessing and should be encouraged and enjoyed. So why are we here? We're not here as people just to work, do the job, take home the money, buy the house, have the car, have the family, whatever else it is, live out our days in this furrow that we've, we've cut for ourselves. It's an important question that we ask because it defines your every waking moment. What am I here for? Why am I here right now? When you go home and you're having your lunch with your family, why are you eating lunch with your family right now beyond just being sustained for another few hours? We weren't made for our comfort and our own blessing. We were made not to have nice, stable lives. We were made to have a loving relationship with God for His glory. And when we live for that, for his honor, to serve him and worship him and bless him, we have everything we need. And that might seem unfair. It's difficult for us to say it's unfair because we live in Western society and not sub-Saharan Africa. 
We're not worried that some horrible pestilence is going to come and wipe out our entire village or slum or wherever it is we happen to live in. We just trot down the road to St. John's and they probably fix us up and send us back home. We were made not to have those things as if they were the greatest value in life. We were made to have a relationship with God, to be obedient to Him so that we flourish and thrive and bless one another and build each other up and glorify God together. And we were made to live in community so that together we all glorify Him far more than we were able to if we were on our own. This means we can't content ourselves with small comforts here and now. It means we can't pursue doggedly the material things of this life as if they're the be-all and end-all. They're not. It actually means that we have to pursue with everything we have God, our relationship with Him, our love for Him. It means we have to pursue one another and strive with every fiber of my being to bless and encourage and equip the people sitting next to you this morning. That's why they're there. You might have wondered why they're there some weeks. I'm quite sure you have, but that's why they're there, for you to bless for you to encourage, for you to exhort and build up all from the Word of God, all under Christ's grace and His love and His mercy and His provision. Anything less than that is to not truly live as men and women. How can I serve God more faithfully? How can I bring greater glory to His name than I currently do? In this, we find true value, true meaning, and true purpose. That is what you were made to be. Let's pray together that we would indeed be the finished article and not the ruins that we might have become. Our loving Heavenly Father, we come before you this morning, Lord, humbled to read of an all-powerful Creator, somebody who is just able to speak and stars come into existence, things bigger and more powerful than we can really imagine, and yet they are tiny and insignificant in comparison to you. Lord God, we thank you that you are not just powerful, though you are loving and you have created this world and created us and placed us in it and enter into a loving relationship with us. You are not just a God to us, you are our God for our blessing and salvation, for our building up and equipping, but also that we might glorify you with every fiber of our being. Lord God, help us to glorify your name. Lord, we've got big questions to ask as we go from this place. As I eat and as I conduct my, my conversations as I go to school or college or work or as I uh, spend time with my family, Lord, how do I glorify God better in this situation, in this circumstance? Because He's given me these things for my blessing. Lord God, help us to ask these questions always. Lord, help us to be people who live for Your glory so that as we point others to You and life in You, we make clear what we're calling them to live, what we want them to have, a life of blessing and joy beyond measure, even in the midst of suffering. Because our health, our possessions aren't the be-all and end-all. You are. So, Lord God, we thank you that you have placed yourself at the center of our lives. Help us to sacrifice that we might exalt you in that place. In Jesus' name, amen.